Welcome to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. In this podcast, we break down high-profile celebrity estate planning cases for advisors and their clients. Most celebrity estate catastrophes are based on the same issues that everyday people face, just with the volume turned up. Our goal is to identify and extract the individual estate planning issues that lie at the heart of each story. We then discuss what advisors should expect and how to avoid common pitfalls. Hosted by WealthManagement.com Senior Editor David Lenock. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of WealthManagement.com's Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. For anyone new to the podcast, in each installment, myself and a guest take on a different celebrity estate and attempt to extract some key lessons that planners can apply to their more traditional clients. The idea being that celebrity estate planning stories, although often ridiculous in their details, generally have at their cores very basic issues that can just as easily apply to non-famous or fabulously wealthy clients. We're once again joined this week by our favorite and most prolific guest, Megan Gorman. Megan is the founding partner of Checkers Financial Management, a fee-only planning firm that specializes in high net worth and ultra high net worth families in San Francisco, California. Checkers focuses on establishing long-term relationships with families and helps them navigate through tax, estate, liquidity, and investment planning. And Megan heads the firm's family office services practice. She's also a member of the board of the National Endowment for Financial Education. She's a senior contributor for Forbes in personal finance and tax, and she's also quoted regularly in the press as a tax and financial planning expert, including such publications as the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and CNBC, among others, which notably includes wealthmanagement.com. She regularly blogs at www.thewealthintersection.com and has appeared on numerous podcasts and is a regular weekly commentator on the Money Tree podcast. It's great to have you back, Megan. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for having me. It's always a, it's always a treat to come on this show. I love talking about these celebrity estate plans. It's always a pleasure to have you. The subject of this week's episode is beloved character actor Philip Seymour Hoffman. Hoffman was an American actor, director, and producer. He was known for playing distinctive supporting and character roles. He acted in many films from the early 90s until his death in 2014. He's widely considered one of the greatest actors of his generation, who portrayed such disparate roles as Truman Capote, a priest, a trust fund kid, and a CIA officer, just to name a few. He died of a suspected drug overdose in 2014, and was survived by his girlfriend Mimi and their three children, ages 10, 7, and 5. Unfortunately, his estate plan was an absolute mess. Hoffman's will was a decade old at the time of his death, and drafted by a real estate lawyer slash CPA, not someone who specializes in estate planning. So first, there's the obvious point that anyone paying attention about 10 seconds ago would have already picked up on. Only one of his kids was actually around at that point to be named in the will. That child was covered by a trust mentioned in the will. However, the other two were left out completely, seeing as you know they weren't in existence at the time. Additionally, since he did not want, and I quote, trust fund kids, the will left the rest of his $35 million estate to his girlfriend, and she was to provide for their children. However, since the pair weren't married, she couldn't avail herself of the estate tax exemption afforded to spouses. This lack of planning resulted in his estate owing approximately $12 million in estate tax. Now, Megan, this is a surprising amount to talk about with Hoffman's estate, but let's start with the most basic part first. Why is it so important to keep estate planning documents up to date? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny, you know, estate planning is really a living thing. 
it's it's something that you constantly have to be cultivating. And I, I say this today because this morning, one of my my most favorite and closest clients actually passed away. And I will tell you the one thing I have some solace in is that everything was in order in that estate plan. And I am sure that when the news broke back in 2014 that Philip Seymour Hoffman had passed away, his accountant who had been long encouraging him to get an estate plan probably had that horrible sinking feeling in his stomach that, oh boy, this is going to be a mess. And so that's why I always talk about with clients, I always say estate planning is a living thing. And really, you know, what I find is getting people to estate planning is sort of contrary to how they all react because people focus on estate planning in a sense of either it's a topic they don't want to deal with or they don't want to spend the money. And the problem with that is if you don't deal with it or spend the money up front to get the right documents, you end up in a situation like this estate did where after someone passes away, there's a lot of cleaning up to do. And I can tell you that most people do not want to be paying those attorney fees and probate fees after someone passes, but this is not an uncommon situation. So what I always say to clients is anytime you have a big life event, someone gets married, you have another child, you have a grandchild, people get divorced, it's a good moment to take a look at the documents to make sure that they reflect your life as it stands today. When you look at it from that aspect, I think it's Philip Seymour Hoffman's situation is not uncommon because despite going through those life events, he continued to not want to deal with the issues and the fact that his wealth was changing. Yeah, and I think, you know, your idea of talking about it as a living document is very important. I think far too many people view a will or an estate plan as something that like you, you take care of once, you sort of take your medicine and then you stick it in a drawer and it's done forever. But obviously that it couldn't be further from the case. And I think, you know, your idea of, of looking at sort of taking life events and like as you know, this is an indication of, okay, it's a good reminder to go back to my estate plan, but it also sort of demonstrates how difficult it is to get people to come into their estate plan because when someone has a kid, this joyous occasion, like, yeah, that's a great reminder in theory, but in practice, like, nobody wants to think about their own mortality when you, you know, when you have this joyous event, you don't, the first thing you think about it doesn't want to be, oh, well, let me just make sure when I die, everything is okay, you know? Correct. Correct. And I think one of the things is this is an estate plan of what I would call missed opportunities. And you said this in the intro, which was Philip Seymour Hoffman had the CPA who kept saying to him, you need to get your state planning done. You need to keep adding to it. And he kept saying, no, I don't want there to be trust fund kids. And, and how we know that this was sort of going on is it, when once something goes into probate, things get entered into the record. And these, these sort of descriptions of the fact that he was resistant to estate planning did get entered into the court records. And I think this concept of trust fund kids, and you even mentioned in your intro that he played one in, in his career. This is where having the right advisors and saying the right things at the right time to a client can be key. Well, we've all had clients that say stuff like this, like, I don't want to have a trust fund kid. I don't want my kids just to run around town and spend money. That's where we as advisors have to sort of challenge the client on a couple of levels. The first is say, that's great that you don't want trust fund children, but if we do nothing, there is a good chance based on the asset base today, and in Philip Seymour Hoffman's case, it was going to be an eight-figure estate tax bill. So that's the first thing. The second thing when people bring up the trust fund kids, you have to remind them, 
This is not just a way to pass money onto kids so that they can buy fancy cars and houses and just jet, jet around Europe. This is about making sure some of your children's basic needs are met to make sure that they have the money to continue with their education, to be able to live in the lifestyle that they lived when you were living. And there are ways to frame things in estate plans to make sure that you're not going to have them be trust fund kids. And this is where his estate plan I found sort of interesting because he said he didn't want trust fund kids, right? And he was verbally telling this to his accountant. And yet he put into the estate plan what I would call incentive provisions or provisions that were to guide the child to certain values that Philip Seymour Hoffman wanted. And that was in his estate plan, he stipulated he wanted his children to be able to go, I think once or twice a year, to New York, Chicago, or San Francisco to experience arts in a metropolitan area. And so that's why I think as practitioners, when we face these type of clients who say, I don't want my kids to be spoiled, I don't want my kids to be brats, I don't care where the money goes when I die, you really have to come at them with, okay, but let's let this play out. What happens here? What happens if you don't take this step? And in Philip Seymour Hoffman's case, the, the answer was, you took a $35 million estate and turned it into pretty much a $21 million asset base. And that's a pretty painful tax hit, regardless if you don't want your kids to be trust fund kids. Yeah, and I mean, there's also the fact that, I mean, what is a trust fund kid really, right? I mean, that's a, a loaded term that means completely different things to completely different people. And for some, if their kid doesn't have a, like a you know, manual labor job, they're a trust fund kid. Where for others, it's like, oh, you know, my kid lives off the trust, but you know, he has the, the correct values. And that's, that's enough for him not to be a trust fund kid. Um, and so it's, that's an important conversation to have, right, with your client, because that takes planning to make sure that, that like your vision of not a trust fund kid is communicated and then realized by the plan. It doesn't just magically happen because you say it shouldn't. Correct. And I think like going back to this concept of an estate plan being a living document, it is also a document that reflects your values, right? So in Philip Seymour Hoffman's case, if we had to sort of think about this from a normal client situation, his values were probably protecting his, his partner his girlfriend in this case, helping and protecting his children, and that if he really wanted there to be other values in the estate plan, rather than paying a huge tax bill, he could have focused on charity and even involved his girlfriend and children in helping to work with charity through some of the money in the estate that would have mitigated estate taxes, but yet would have promoted his values. And one of his values, which is very clear, was that he wanted people to participate in the arts. And this, you know, when he was in New York, he's been involved with theater groups there. So this was something consistent with his whole life. I think the thing is, this is an estate plan of somebody who didn't get challenged. And, you know, we're focusing right now on the kids, but there's something even more integral here which is he didn't set this estate plan up properly thinking about his romantic relationship. Now, David, by all accounts, he had a great relationship with his girlfriend. There were some drug issues at the very end of their relationship, which caused them to break up right before he died. But they were together for a really long time, and they appeared to be in a good relationship for a long time. What I see in this estate plan is that he clearly wanted to take care of her because he does leave his estate to her in the estate plan, but he didn't think through a lot of the ramifications. 
So the, the, the first ramification, which we always have to think about is, he didn't take advantage of the unlimited marital, de marital deduction because he didn't get married. They were boyfriend, girlfriend. And one of the things his advisors should have said, or hopefully they did say and explain to him, is that when you're not married and you pass away, if an estate tax is due, it's due nine months after you pass away. But if you're married, you have the ability to have your estate pass to your spouse completely estate tax free. And that's you know really important in this concept of estate preservation because spouses together are treated as a single economic unit. And so he didn't seem to understand that getting married would be important in protecting his estate, or maybe it wasn't important to him. But if you have a client who does not want to get married, who feels strongly about not wanting to get married, then that means the onus is on them to do even more estate planning. So there were things that he could have done that he could have made sure his girlfriend got his estate plan and yet took advantage of certain things in the estate tax code. He could have made sure that at his death, it went into a trust for her benefit and then his heirs, his three children. And that would have allowed, even though there might have been a state tax due at his death, at her death, these assets wouldn't get taxed again. The other thing he, he didn't protect against is he died fairly young. He was 46. And I think his girlfriend was in the same age range. But for all he knows, he, she could live 40, 50, 60 years. And so by giving her all the money outright, she has the choice to give it to whomever she wants it to at her death. And it doesn't mean her wishes would match what he would have wanted done with the money. I see in this estate plan just sort of a real disconnect about what he cared about in life and the people he cared about and what he ended up doing. Yeah, I'm really glad you brought up this point about her now having control of it going forward. Because I think mm -hmm. in this case, since all three kids were their kids, mm -hmm. you're probably, I mean, not going not gonna to have to worry about her being like, all right, well, Johnny gets everything and you other two, I don't like you, so you're screwed. If you just tweak one part of this fact pattern to show how important this is, and if one of those kids was with another woman, now maybe she's totally fine with that, but it's well within the realm of reality that she would favor her own blood children over this other kid who was Philip's kid, but she has no actual blood relationship to. And that's the sort of little thing that can happen. Maybe she gets remarried that you realize, oh, I'm giving her control of it and I trust her, but it's like, well, maybe you know, there's a little bit more guidance you can give. There's, there's a very thin um, in line here. We talk about the dead hand on this show all the time between too much control, which is that sort of dead hand from beyond the grave. Like you must do this, this and this. You have to marry a Jewish person, kind of full on incentivizing of things. And this sort of laissez faire, here's thirty five million dollars. Make sure my kids aren't trust fund kids. There's a there's a happy medium in there where there's, where there's a little more guidance offered. And because you're kind of dropping a big task into someone's lap as well as just, you know, not only giving them the money, but it's also here's all this responsibility. And you have to wonder in the back of your head what I would have wanted without me being actually there to tell you. It's, it's this combination of, of, of these things where the plan can really help to, to smooth these transitions, not just for the assets, but also for the, the people left behind so they know what to do a little bit and it's not all just in their lap. Exactly, exactly. And I think from a practitioner's standpoint, you know, we all always use the, the same old joke when we're presenting these ideas to clients, which is we, we pick on flight attendants and pool boys, right? I think when we're working with clients, the, the thing that I always sort of bring up is, okay, let's say down the line, your spouse 
This isn't held in trust and your spouse or your, your now in this case, your girlfriend is suffering from dementia and she falls in love with the pool boy, right? And so she just gives the pool boy the estate. By giving her the assets outright, you've allowed this risk to get factored in and, and, and vice versa, right? If he had survived her, he could have given the money to the flight attendant. And those are the two jokes that we bring up with clients. But in today's day and age where longevity is a risk factor at times in estate planning, we have to make sure that we're protecting our significant others. And I think, you know, it, it, it's, if I was his girlfriend, obviously beyond being devastated about losing him, there is an element to this where I would be really angry because I have been exposed to the probate system, right? With an estate plan that, that really just gave me everything and wasn't tax efficient, just created a lot of different risks for me down the line. Because remember, we all know how big the estate is. And I think one of the things that we always have to think about when we have these large estates is, what type of document do you want to be using? Now we all, you know, it's, it's funny, I'm sitting here in California. So when we say estate planning in California, Californians always jump to revocable trust because we all function in a revocable trust uh, system out here. But it always surprises me when I work with clients in other states that revocable trusts are not as common or they're not what people automatically think about with an estate plan. And I think the thing for people to keep in mind is you can have a will, but a will can be probated and be part of the public record. But when you have a revocable trust, the beauty of the trust is it creates privacy for you and your heirs. So there might be something filed in court to say that there is a revocable trust, but nobody has to know what's going on inside of it. And that's another miss that Hoffman um, had in his estate plan. Well, I'm glad you brought this up because it's actually kind of a hit and a miss, right? Because it illustrates mm -hmm. that privacy question pretty adroitly because we know everything about this estate, right? Because it went through probate. But the only thing we don't know is that there is that one little trust he left for the, for the, for the oldest child. And we have no idea what's in that. That's like kind of perfectly illustrates that we, we know so much about this estate, but then there is this one chunk that we don't know because that's the one part that was put in trust. Yeah, and there's another thing about this that when I read, read this, I, I thought a lot about because I've had clients where they have a very specific tangible asset. That asset is unique to them. It could be a piece of jewelry, a piece of art. And one of the things that struck me was this estate plan was written in 2004. He passed in 2014. And I think he won his Oscar somewhere around, around 2010. He had this Oscar. The question is, with a tangible asset like this, what do you want to have to happen to something that's very unique and precious to you? And obviously that was not addressed in the estate plan, but that is an issue that people should think about when they get these types of awards or pieces of art or jewelry or something very unique, because you don't want family members to either lose the asset or fight over it. And that wasn't addressed here as well. You know, there's one thing that actually like, hasn't ever come up on this show that I thought was very interesting this, and that's the idea that there are two kids who are just not in this will and are just not factored in at all. And can you just go through a little bit? I know this is obviously on a state-by-state -state basis, this changes, but kind of what the implications are of having children, afterborn children, we call them in New York, that weren't in existence at the time of the will and are just left out. Yeah, it gets tricky, right? <laughs> this is a very tricky area of law. And the good news for him was that his children were all with the same mother, okay? And he did include one of his children 
in the estate plan. So as a result, and New York is like a lot of other states out there, there are similar laws protecting children who were born after their parents' wills were written. Basically, in New York, he, these children will be included in the estate plan because he had included his son in the estate plan. Therefore, they were included under the law and they were not omitted. It would have been a much different outcome if he had not provided for any of the children or if the children were for different mothers. So he had it much easier here. But that's why you have to think about life events. You know, if you have a child, you want to make sure you have provisions in there adding each child to your estate plan. And I always tell clients, listen, some of these amendments to an estate plan or a codicil, they're cheap and cheery amendments. They're not going to cost you a small fortune. That's why it's always good as things happen to just bring it up with your estate planner. I think sometimes people who are creative feel that they don't want to tread into the, the world of finance, right? Where they don't want to get into that legal financial world, which they might feel restricting. And it's a real shame because I think if he had had the right, I don't want to say he had the wrong advisors because it sounds like they tried to do the right thing. But if, if he had done the right thing with his estate plan, he would have protected everybody who is near and dear to his heart. Yeah, and I think it's also just important to realize, we talk about on this show, flexibility and planning all the time and sort of what a state plan needs to be robust enough to stand up to the ravages of time. But I think a lot of times we don't really take a step back and look at what that means, right? And, and that's why it's so important to step in, to really illustrate how it's important it is to step in and, and update this every so often, because it's just impossible for an estate plan to, to, you know, left alone to stand the test of time in the way it has to. Like, if you take the traditional person, say you're 30 when you when you write your will, and then you die at 70, and you don't touch it in between. That's 40 years. That would be the equivalent of today, if I dropped it today and I had my will from 1980, that was supposed to you know, somehow anticipate the, everything that had happened in between. So, you know, regardless of that length of life, but just the world of 2020 compared to the world of 1980 and what was even in our conception of things that could happen are just so wildly different that the idea of not going back to the document and having and having the document still be robust enough to stand up is insane. And I, I think the, the other thing is, I always tell clients, we plan for you to review these documents all the time, but we also want to make sure that they are going to last in case you forget to go back. And I think the thing in his case, if he was so focused on his kids not being trust fund kids, I think in a way, it sounds odd, he should have used trusts with his kids a little bit better to make sure they didn't become trust fund kids. I think he could have really sculpted out a beautiful estate plan where there was a trust set up for each of his children and they could obviously have access for money for education, health, maintenance, support, right? But if the child was not behaving in a certain manner, let's say like him, one of the child children had an addiction problem, right? then the trust could have restricted the child's access. He also could have used the trust to help protect his children against creditors or any potential former spouses. He could have done a lot here that would have really met his needs and not made them trust fund children. And now today, everybody knows they have the money, they know that these kids are, are wealthy, and that puts them more at risk to act like trust fund kids. Yeah, and I think that's a really great thing to point out, right? Because that's one of those semantic things that a client can really get caught up on that sort of lawyers sometimes don't even think about or planners because it's just, these are words, we know the meaning of them, you know, intuitively we, we've learned them. And so the idea that the best way to avoid a child becoming a trust fund kid is by using trusts is something that maybe may take a little explaining 
to a client, right? Even though, you know, no, no matter how for granted we take it, that's the sort of thing that you have to pay attention to and say, well, you know, I know this sounds silly, but this is actually because, but because we've sort of applied this casual name to this type of person, but you know, really the, the, the vehicle that will give you the most control of ensuring that this doesn't happen happens to be <laughs> named very, very much the same thing. Exactly. Exactly. And I think the thing is, it's sort of funny. Estate planning is, it's, it's weird because it's one of those weird areas of the law. And, and this is true with just when you're working on the estate planning process that is so relationship based and so about knowing your clients. And yet, because it's transactional in the sense of how you pay for it in terms of hours with the attorney and so on, People are loath to do it, and by being loath to do it, they don't spend the time with the estate planner who can really look at your fact pattern and make sure your estate plan is properly sculpted to your situation. Now, I will say one thing in this estate plan that I saw that I, I think it's important to bring up is one of the things that Hoffman did do is he did have in his estate plan something called a disclaimer provision. So even though he gave the estate to, to his girlfriend, Mimi, she had the right to disclaim all or part of the inheritance and have it go into a trust. And so I always like these provisions in estate plans. I don't know about you, David, but I think that they're really good to have in there because sometimes things happen post-death that we want to give the survivor some flexibility. And I liked the fact that that was in there. No, I agree. That's a nice touch. I think anything that offers more flexibility in the planning and in the estate plan is just a, a net positive, kind of no matter what it is for the most part. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, I, I think the thing is, as much as I loved Philip Seymour Hoffman as an actor, I, I really, truly expected more out of his estate plan. And I think it was some missed opportunities because I say this because I do know he's involved with a lot of he was involved with a lot of organizations in New York that are on the acting front and a lot of just struggling actors and, and the profession is I really would have expected him not just to take care of his girlfriend and his children better, but I would have thought he would have wanted some legacy there. And I think he obviously will have a great legacy and we do think of him as a great actor, but it could have been a little deeper in terms of the art that he cares so much about. Yeah, I think this is sort of a tale of of how important it is to actually sit down and do things. Like, I, it's clear that he thought about this. I, I think that it's clear, you know, he had thoughts and opinions on this much more than I think the average person has worked through by their mid 40s a lot of the time. He, you know, he, he had a will in place. He had thoughts about his legacy and his children. He just hadn't actually put pen to paper to update these things really often enough. And also, I mean, obviously not being married sort of complicated things even further and made things even more of a mess where we can't underestimate, again, the bundle of rights that comes with marriage and how. Mm -hmm. How, how many wheels that grease is legally in terms of just making things work. Whereas if you're not married, all of a sudden, you know, everything becomes open to question. But this, is, this story is really like, this man thought about it. This isn't some guy who they had to drag kicking and screaming. He had thoughts. He just didn't actually put pen to paper. And, that, and that's kind of the most important step, really. Exactly. Exactly. And I think, you know, this just says to advisors, at times you have to be fearless for the benefit of the client by pushing some of these issues and really trying to get them to do the right thing. And it's hard, it's incredibly hard to get people to do this stuff. I can't tell you how many times we sit on drafts of estate plans just waiting to sign off on them because people just need to make one little last decision. And, and, and sometimes you wanna be like, listen, that decision's not even that important. Your ultimate contingent beneficiary, who cares? Or your third set of guardians, who cares? We just need documents. We just need to get this done so it's appropriate. 
Yeah, there's something about the finality of the signing I've found for whatever reason in the wills I've worked on, the lot, in the estate plans I've worked on that. We'll work through the whole thing. It's finished. But then just like that finality of coming in and signing it for whatever reason really gets to people. I have had instances where people have been ill and we have the estate plan and we need them to sign it and it's pressing. And I'm always amazed that it does not, it has happened numerous times to me where we do something, we sign something because we're at that final moment, right? We have to get it done. Yeah. And it's it's tough. Now, obviously that wasn't the case in this situation. This is somebody who didn't look at their estate plan. All I would have said to Philip Seymour Hoffman is, you'd much rather do this yourself than have the state of New York decide your estate and where it goes. We're just about all out of time, but I'd like to thank Megan Gorman for, as always, being a fantastic guest. Oh, thank you, and thanks for having me. And anyone who's listening, get, get your clients' estate plans done. It's a good to-do for <laughs> 2021. Get things off on the right note and hopefully a much better 2021. Exactly. For all our listeners, I'll see you, or I guess you'll hear me, on the next episode of Celebrity Estates, Wills of the Rich and Famous. Thank you for listening to the Celebrity Estates Wills of the Rich and Famous podcast. Click the subscribe button below to become notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of InformaWealthManagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional investing advice. Always seek the advice of your financial advisor or other qualified financial service provider with any questions you may have regarding your investment planning. Today's episode is brought to you by Nationwide Advisory. At Nationwide Advisory Solutions, our mission is to help RAAs and fee-based advisors build their practices by enabling their clients to accumulate more wealth and reach their financial goals. We do this by developing and delivering value-added investment solutions and services that fit the fiduciary standard wrapped in an industry-leading customer experience. To learn more, visit www.nationwideadvisory.com.